Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. As our regular listeners know, American Jewish Committee has named May as Jewish and Proud Month to celebrate the Jewish people's united bravery and resilience in the face of adversity. People of the Pod has been taking part in this month-long campaign with not only a special lineup of guests, but a special lineup of listeners, too, answering the question, what does being Jewish mean to you? We've received a bevy of responses, but this week, we selected a few special voices. I'm Max, and I like being Jewish because in my class of 23 people at school, I'm the only one who's Jewish, and that makes me feel unique. Hey, Bubby, what do you love about being Jewish? Playing Hanukkah games. Can you say, I'm Jewish and proud? I'm Jewish and proud. I'm Rose from Verona, New Jersey, and I like being Jewish because I get to say prayers in front of the candles. I'm Jewish, I'm proud, I'm Jewish and proud. Thanks, kids. What does being Jewish mean to you? We want to know your answer. Call the People of the Pod hotline at 212-891-1336 and leave a message of a minute or less in our voicemail inbox. Don't forget to include your name and city with your answer and eliminate background noise. We want to hear your answer loud and clear. You may hear your voice on a future episode of People of the Pod. Call 212-891-1336. Hunter College professor Leah Garrett's most recent book isn't your typical piece of military history, just as Professor Garrett, a Jewish-American woman, is not your typical British military historian. Her latest book, X-Troop, The Secret Jewish Commandos of World War II, available in paperback this month, tells a little-known story about a group of Jewish refugees from Germany tapped by Winston Churchill to become clandestine commandos and counterintelligence agents for the British Army. Think Inglorious Bastards without the bloodshed and dark humor, but instead as a story of redemption based on well-researched facts. Leah Garrett is with us now to explain the inspiration behind the book and the inspiration it offers. Professor Garrett, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here today. So first and foremost, who are the X-Troop? The X-Troop is this unknown secret commando unit of Jewish refugees. In 1942, when the war was going really bad for the British and the Germans were just sort of wiping out all the countries of Europe and it looked like they were absolutely unstoppable, Winston Churchill met with Lord Montbatten and they thought to themselves, we need to do something really radical to change the tide of the war. What they decided that they would do was create something called Inter-Allied 10 Commando, which would be a commando unit made entirely of men who were refugees from countries that the Nazis had invaded. So within that unit, there would be a Belgian troop and a French troop and a Polish troop. But then they decided that something that would be quite extraordinary would be to have a German speaking troop. And the idea was that they would create something called the X troop, which would be German speakers who would be doubly trained. Nothing like this had existed before. So the idea was that they would be trained as commandos who would go to the forefront of the battles and kill and capture the enemy. But then while they were in the heat of battle, 
they would interrogate them so they would also be trained as counterintelligence officers. Because what usually you would do is if you capture the enemy, take them back to base, do an interrogation. But the problem is that the battle's going on all around you and you need to know where the mines are. You need to know where the machine gun nest is. So they decided they would create this German speaking unit, ex-troop, but they also realized that if any of these men were captured, they would be killed immediately because they were Germans who were fighting Germans. And because the only German speaking refugees who would wanna go back and kill and fight the Nazis would be Jews. So they knew that this would be a Jewish refugee unit. So the other very extraordinary aspect of the ex-troop was that when the men were selected, because they were looking for men who were brilliant and also men who were very physical, because they had to be commandos and they had to be counterintelligence officers. And so when they ended up selecting the group that would be the ex-troop, which was about 84 men, all of them were given about 10 minutes to come up with fake British names. They all had to come up with fake British backstories about why they were British but had German accents. And no one knew they were Jewish. They wore Church of England dog tags, right? Which, of course, led them to be buried as Christians. But that has been rectified in some cases, which you wrote about for the foreword. Can you tell our listeners a little about that? About two months ago, I was contacted by a relative of an ex-trooper in California who said to me, my great uncle is one of the guys who was an ex-troop and he's buried under a cross. He's Jewish. He has a fake name. Is there anything you can do to help here? So I put her in touch with an archivist in the UK. And then about six weeks ago or so, I was invited to a Zoom event, the most moving event I've ever witnessed in my life, where they did a full military ceremony and a full Jewish ceremony for this ex-trooper who had buried, been buried under a cross in a Manchester cemetery and reinterred him under a Magen David or Star of David. So this is a very strange and compelling and important story, but they're not only they're all pretending that they're British, all of them are German or Austrian Jewish refugees. So they're all have stories of the Holocaust. Most of them have come on kinder transport as children by themselves or teenagers by themselves. Why did they agree to do this? I mean, they'd gotten out. Why did they agree to go back? I knew I had this incredible story, but when I started to go through all the war diaries and tell the full story of the ex-troop, The other thing I discovered about them was that they changed the course of the war. They were at the forefront of all the most important European battles. They were at Sicily, Battle of the Bulge, Normandy landings. And because for all of them, the war was completely personal, the clock was ticking. They had to beat the Nazis so they could try and rescue their sisters who were hidden in Paris. They fought with unheralded bravery. Nobody fought like the ex-troop fought. Not only were they there, but they were the leaders of all the campaigns doing the most dangerous and important missions as well. So what launched you on this path to begin with? So my last book before this one was also about World War II, but it was about Jewish American veterans. I had this feeling as a historian that when we talked about the Holocaust and we talked about Jewish resistance, I honestly felt we were only telling a tiny bit of the story because what we would talk about was, you know, we would talk about the Warsaw Uprising and then, you know, most of the people died or we talked about the partisans or we talked about kindly Gentiles who saved Jews. I thought it was really important to tell more stories about Jews who saved Jews. And so part of why I wrote my last book was this very firm belief I have that when we talk about Jewish resistance during World War II, 
We need to extend that to include the military. Jews served in the American military in disproportionately high numbers. They were crucial to the British military. They served in the Russian armies as Jews, and they were fighting World War II differently. They were fighting it because they saw that the Jews were being killed and massacred, and they were putting their hands up to volunteer for the most important missions. So part of why I wrote the last book, part of why I wrote this book too, was to extend our notion of Jewish resistance, which hasn't happened, and I still don't understand why it hasn't happened, to include Jews who went into the military and fought back on the forefront of all these battles to get rid of the Nazi threat. Did these troops seek revenge? Was that their motivation? And was it their approach to combat? That's a great question. So when Quentin Tarantino put out this movie called Inglorious Bastards, which was a Jewish revenge fantasy about commandos, when that came out, the group of the commandos who were still alive wrote a bunch of letters to each other that I read in the archive. And they were really angry about the movie because they said, and they were right, it was never about revenge. They followed the rules of war. They were deeply embedded in the British military. All of them, like I said, all of them were fighting under secret names. Nobody knew who they really were except for one secretary to MI5. So to write the book, I had to declassify all this material to be able to tell the story. And what I saw when I looked at the material, when I, I actually interviewed some living commandos a year and a half ago when I was still writing the book, I interviewed all their family members. The British kept these very extensive things called war diaries where they wrote all the details of each battle. And what was absolutely evident to me was that they, and they said this over and over in interviews they did after the war, we are different from them. We fight differently. We are not doing this for revenge. We are doing this to right a world that's gone terribly wrong. And so it was really important to them, even when they were interrogating high-ranking Nazis, to make sure that they showed the world that this sort of Jewish ethical stance was built on a different type of foundation. So they did not break the rules of war. They followed them because they had had such an intense training that when they went into battle, they were so confident of what they were doing, why this was so important, who the enemy was, because they had grown up with the enemy in Germany and Austria. They knew what he looked like. Many of them said over and over again, I knew I was battling the boys at school who kicked me because I was Jewish. Like they knew intimately who this enemy was, but they also felt that they had this sort of moral requirement that they did not do revenge, that they did things by script, and that that would actually, as they felt, be a more effective way to beat the Nazis than it was. I mean, this was a, a rather motley crew, right, of artists and intellectuals, not the kinds of guys that you would think would be in combat or would sign up for something like this. But if you could kind of speak to, you just mentioned the training. I mean, there was a transformation that took place. I mean, these men, yes, they came in as youth, many of them on the kinder transport. How did this training and preparation and entry into the war really transform them? And how much of that training versus the Jewish ethical principles inform that role? All of them grow up, like you said, these very cultured families in Vienna and Berlin. Only one of the men I write about, who I actually write extensively about, was Orthodox Jewish. Most of them were, you know, they had bar mitzvahs, but they were fairly secular. Culture and art, you know, and so they come from this world. Their parents have to make that impossible decision to put them on trains, either on a transit visa program or a kinder transport. So they arrive as teenagers by themselves in the UK. 
When the war breaks out, unfortunately, there's a very dark moment in British history where Churchill says, we need to collar the lot of them. And they end up interring all of the German speaking refugees who are young single men, who are all these guys, the way we did it with the Japanese there, they did it too. But unfortunately there, they didn't think about the fact that 85% of these German guys are Jewish. So they all go through this very difficult year long internment behind barbed wire in the UK that I write about and have very detailed stories about. Finally, they're allowed out and they get selected for this top secret commando unit. They knew as well that they didn't have the background that would make them these effective warriors. And they got very lucky because their commanding officer was this Welsh guy. He wasn't Jewish, but he became a father figure to them. And he decided what he would do was take these 84 guys to this. It's one of the many strange parts of the story. He took them to this small town in Wales on the coast of Wales. And he would put them in, lo they billeted with local Welsh people. They couldn't even remember their names or their buddies' names. So they're all pretending they're these British people. They've gotten rid of anything that has their name on them. The Orthodox guy I write about had to send his Tolleson to fill in away. You know, they're not kosher. All of that has to be sublimated. They're living with these locals. They're eating Welsh food. It just blows the mind. And, you know, the Welsh accent's difficult to understand. And then he decides he's going to give them the most difficult training he can because he wants them to be the top warriors in the battle. So for the next year or so until the Normandy landings, and some of them are pulled away for the Sicily landings, he has them climb mountains, he has them jump out of airplanes, he has them dropped off in the woods and have to get their way back with nothing. Some of them are arrested, then they're let out of it. And what all of them said about that year-long experience was that it was incredibly difficult because they were hiding who they were, but it left them with this profound sense of confidence. Now they knew all the German arms and what to do if they captured them. And it's so interesting, when the British were set to do the Normandy landings on D-Day, by that point, the British military starts to say to themselves, wow, these guys are incredible. They would do these like commando competitions. The ex-troopers would win all of them. You know, they were sending a bunch of them to Cambridge to do counterintelligence training. So they were at a totally different level than other commandos because the war was so personal for all of them. So when they do the D-Day landings, just a few days before the actual landings, the British military makes another unusual decision that they'd never made before about a commando unit which was rather than have them fight as their own commando unit, like the Polish troop or the French troop, these guys were too valuable. They were too good. So once they made that decision, they decided that like if a bomb went off, we don't want to lose 20 of these guys. And also their leadership skills and their focus is so profound. We're actually not going to let them land as their own unit. We're going to parcel them out in threes and fours and fives to existing commando units and have them be the leaders of those units. So that's another reason why the story is so remarkable. So at the D-Day landings, all the guys are parceled out to different commander units to take charge and lead the landings, lead the Battle of the Bulge, all these things we know about. And it's so remarkable that all the men they were fighting with didn't know that the guy who's leading the charge and is the bravest and you know the hardest guy there is actually like a kid who grew up in Vienna. And one of the people who trained with them after the war there was a woman married to one of them and she talked about them and she said, you know, where all the other commandos were talking about like beer and, you know, football, these guys were talking about Schopenhauer. They were exactly who you think they were, but then they got the training to make them the most effective warriors in the British military.
you got to interview some of the living commandos, and there is a lot of hesitation and reluctance on the part of Holocaust survivors to talk about their experiences during World War II. Did you find yourself having to convince some of these men to talk more openly, to open up a little bit more than they had? Yeah, 100%. So when I wrote the book, I, I, I learned through, I started to network with all the children of commandos I could find, because we all know that Holocaust and war memories are fallible, right? So I knew that I wanted to do this broad approach to the book. I wanted to interview children and see what the family archives were. Ideally, I wanted to interview commandos, but I also went into all the archives around the world that had material because if somebody in an interview said, like, I stormed up this hill and I killed five Hitler youth, I wanted to make sure that was true. And fortunately, like I said, the British military kept these diaries and I found out it was all true. All these crazy, remarkable things these guys said they did were in the war diaries. But I really wanted to interview two commandos. And when I wrote it, I heard there were two who were still alive. One of them was Paul Streeton who's a very famous Jewish economist. I think he was at Oxford, then he was at BU. He I interviewed through his daughter. So, And he was very open to questions, and I quote him quite a bit in the book. However, I also discovered there was another commando who did not want to talk about it. He had spent his whole life after the war using his British pseudonym. He hadn't told anybody of his experiences. And, and you know, he was 97. He didn't want to start now. And so I, you know, I emailed him, he didn't respond. I called him, he didn't respond. Then I wrote him a very formal letter on Hunter Stationery. And I said, please, can I please interview? And finally he called me up and he said, yeah, you can interview me. And when I was there, he said, look, you can interview me, but you need to make an agreement with me that for five years after the book comes out, you keep me under a fake name. I don't want people to know my assumed name. I don't want them to know my real name. And so I was thinking, why is it so important to him? And I understood it when I was interviewing him because he started talking about how when his parents waved goodbye to him at a, I think it was a Berlin train station. Then he said to me, and then they disappeared into the smoke. I never saw them again. And I sort of realized as I was speaking to him, he hadn't talked about this since he was a teenager. And this was a place he did not want to go again. The place he was comfortable going was the ex-troop because all of the men felt that they'd really changed the world and redeemed the world through their actions. But it was just literally too painful for him to go there again. And one of the interesting things I discovered in writing the book was that those many, you know, many of the men who lived ended up, in fact, most of them kept their fake British names. They did not revert to their childhood names. And I think about it a lot as sort of the way emigrants, when they went to Israel, they took on these names that made them feel more confident. And for these guys, the ex-troop name was the name that was associated with power and fighting back and winning the war. And the birth name was associated with their moms, and it was too painful. But the other thing I noticed about that, interviewing the kids of the British, was a lot of the British kids didn't know that they were Jewish growing up. And they said, like, you know, they would hit 14 and then they'd be invited to a cousin's bar mitzvah. And they'd say, wait, why, why do I have a cousin who's having a bar mitzvah? So their children figured it out, the ones who didn't want to talk about it. But many of them, I think, you know, I don't know if it's because they sensed that there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Britain after the war, which there was. There was a new revival of the fascist movement there after the war. I don't know if the fathers just felt they were still so close to Germany. It was dangerous. I'm not sure what it was. But there was very much sort of a, a fear, even after all that they'd accomplished, to return to sort of publicly Jewish roots, although those who came to America, many of them did so. 
Were children and grandchildren just as reticent to talk about their family's hidden history, especially as it related to the Holocaust or their Jewish background? I contacted like every child I could find of a commander, which is quite a few. We have a big email list we're all doing together. And everyone I reached out to interview, it was sort of like they were waiting at the door with tons of photos and journals and all this material about their profoundly heroic Jewish dads. And so I got to walk through the door and say, tell me about your dads. And they just had huge amounts of material that every single one of them shared with me incredibly generously. And one of the men I interviewed, I said, like, would your dad have wanted me to write about the fact that this was a Jewish troop or would he have preferred me just to call it like a refugee troop? And he said to me, my dad would probably have preferred that you didn't say Jewish, but you're writing history and historically this was a Jewish troop and they fought as Jews. So um, I'll just give you sort of a, a moment of that interview. That was one of the most emotional interviews I did. So I interviewed the son of the man who's on the cover of the book, who's holding a Tommy gun, this really tough ex-trooper. It was right before lockdown. I met him in a pub outside of London and I sat with him and I interviewed him. He had amazing stuff. He had letters of his dad and we talked all about his dad. And and he had spent his whole life in the British military too, as had his son. So it was like a British military family. And as I'm sitting there with him, I said to him, look, I need to ask you something that I have to ask all the children of commandos. And it's really painful, but I'm sorry, but it's sort of part of telling this full historical account do you know what happened to your dad's family? And I'm sitting here facing this really tough guy who's been in the military his whole life. And he just broke down and he started sobbing while I'm sitting there. And I just sat there very, very quietly with him. And he just cried and he cried. And then he pulled himself together and he said, you know, when I was growing up, I never knew what happened to my grandparents, the parents of the dad who was in the next troop. And my dad couldn't talk about it. And then a couple of years ago, my wife went to Germany and started to investigate. And we found out that his parents had been taken to the lodge ghetto and had never been heard from again. And as he was sitting there with me crying and talking about this, I realized even more emphatically that I was telling not only the story of World War II, I was telling the story of the Holocaust. So I want to quickly bring us into the present. You are a Jewish historian. You teach at Hunter College. And last year, you made a very difficult decision to resign from the faculty union, the faculty union of the City Universities of New York, because they had adopted a resolution that you found to be quite offensive and alienating, if I may use that word. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to that decision and where it stands now, where that union's position stands now? Yeah, so that was a very hard decision for me because, look, I grew up in like a Jewish socialist family. My family was the, the Vladics, who people in the audience, some of them might have heard about Baruch Vladek and, you know, all these big Yiddishists. They worked at the forward, all this kind of background. And so union was like in my blood. But you know, as a graduate student, I spent a year in Israel on a Fulbright fellowship at Tel Aviv University, and I'm a staunch Zionist at the same time. So, you know, I've been hired to create this Jewish study center at Hunter, which has been phenomenal. And Hunter's phenomenal for Jewish students and Jewish faculty. And so, you know, I was working there, I was teaching courses, and then I discovered that this union that I was part of was propagating this idea of doing this can't remember the exact name for it. it was something like the statement in support of Palestinian rights. 
And basically what it did not mention was Hamas. It did not mention any of the terror against Jews. And it basically implied that this would be the first step to BDS, which would be boycotting Israel. You know, I run a Hebrew program at Hunter. We're working to do more Israel programming. And I felt just profoundly and deeply offended, not only personally, but also as this person who has students who are Israeli and Jewish students who felt that this is not leaving a space for them. And I just felt it was so immoral and wrong. I also felt like, look, you're only going to do this against Israel. And there are many countries that you could do this against. Why is it only Israel? Look, if they were doing it against 10 countries, maybe. But just Israel? Are you serious? So I, I spent months battling the union, you know, calling them up, writing letters, encouraging and working with my fellow Jewish studies folks at all the CUNY campuses. So we created a whole group together. And some of them were of the idea, let's keep sort of arguing with the union. And I kept doing that and it was to no effect. They weren't listening to anything. So then finally I thought, I'm going to write a really public letter. I'm going to publish it in the foreword where my great grandfather was an editor which makes it even more important because of this background I have. And I'm going to do a statement against why I'm publicly resigning from the union. So I published, that was published. I publicly resigned from it because I felt that there were, I used to think that one could differentiate between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I don't feel that way anymore. So I've changed a lot over the last few years. I think it's often hand in hand. And I have to say, unfortunately, it's still a continuing battle and it's very, very painful. But there's a bunch of us who are sort of banding together to try and fight it. Hunter itself is phenomenal. We have a Jewish president. We have a Jewish dean. You know, they have our back. They support Jewish studies. And I keep thinking, my God, can you imagine if I weren't at Hunter and I were doing this, how lonely and terrible I would feel? It's been a really hard thing, to be honest, to sort of fight my own colleagues. You know, I did letters out to all of the departmental chairs. I'm going to get a bit upset as I talk about this. And I only heard back from sort of a couple of them privately off the books about it. So it's very, very painful. And I can't imagine how much worse it would be at a place that wasn't so emphatically pro-Jewish as Hunter, if that makes sense. It does. But if you could maybe be more specific, I mean, how has Hunter supported you? In other words, and I'm asking this question in case there are faculty members or administrators out there who are wondering, okay, I do support my Jewish faculty, but how do I express that effectively? Yeah. So they raised a good amount of money for me at Hunter to run a lot of anti-Semitism programming. So I created this thing called the Cooper Fellows, where this year we had 62 applicants, 12 of them we selected broad, diverse range of students to educate them in anti-Semitism. We sent them to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. I work with different faculty to do anti-Semitism training. I work with the Hillel quite a bit so that we do things together. It's been very, very painful, but all of us in Jewish studies at Hunter have felt that the administration takes so seriously the concerns of the students and the faculty. But it's hard and it's a lonely kind of battle because academia is very much against this. And a lot of folks in Jewish studies are against this stuff too, which I find incredibly strange and painful as well. We just commemorated VE Day, Victory in Europe, the end of World War II, just a couple of days ago. And people refer to it often as the darkest time in Europe. I'm curious what your thoughts are on what faces Europe now, with Russia looming. I'm also curious if that same faculty union has condemned Russia in any way. The faculty union has not condemned Russia. 
the faculty union is still working to propagate BDS. The faculty union is, as far as I consider it, completely on the wrong side of history here. In terms of when I look at Europe, I actually worry more about Marie Le Pen and France and the rise of anti-Semitism there. I think about what's going on in all the European countries. I think I've been most surprised, to be honest, not that it's happening in Europe, but how much it's happening here. Because I grew up when it was, you know, pretty safe to be who I was and not think about it. But my daughters, they were stars of David and they're very proud. But I remember saying to them, like, I'm kind of uncomfortable with you wearing that. And they said, no, 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 we're going to wear it. And then, of course, they wear it. But I can't believe I actually have to think about these things. So and I think about my students. So what I tend to focus on more is my shock and sadness about how pervasive anti-Semitism is here. And also my shock and sadness that when people talk about diversity and hate, why nobody in America seems to include the Jews. And that makes me feel completely crazy, actually. So I constantly at Hunter and other places kind of push Jewish studies into all the diversity stuff and like constantly say, look, if we're talking about these groups, we have to talk about Jews because we're as much a victim as anybody else is. And something I said to somebody recently has been this reconfiguration in my own head where, you know, when we used to think about diversity and what it meant to be Jewish, as we all know, there was this idea that Jews were white. And I don't believe that anymore. I think we are fully on the side of people who have to deal with hatred on a day-to-day basis. This is Jewish American Heritage Month. And AJC has actually dubbed it Jewish and Proud Month. I cannot think of a better topic than an author, a Jewish-American author, who has written a book about some really amazing, amazing Jewish commandos who had every reason to be proud. (laughs) We are asking all of our guests this month, what being Jewish means to them? What makes you Jewish and proud. So I now pose that question to you. Well, again, if you'd asked me this question like three years ago, what I would have said was, you know, open and, you know, embracing everyone and all this sort of pause. I, gosh, I can't believe who I've become, but I've become this because of anti-Semitism in America. I wouldn't say that anymore. What I say is something I learned from the ex-troopers and why I hope people get this book for their bar mitzvah kids, because it tells us this. What does it mean to be Jewish? It means to fight, honestly. It means to know that you come from the greatest culture and that people won't stop us. And we are diverse in terms of our language acquisition and our knowledge and that we read Schopenhauer and that we're cultured and we play piano and, you know, or we're working class, whatever it is. But we have to be, as far as I see now from these battles I've been doing over this last year, We have to fight for that on every front that we need to fight for it until this terrible, terrible time period passes. Well, I wish you so much luck and courage and strength as you continue that battle. And yes, I have to agree, X Troop is very inspiring. It definitely fuels that Jewish pride that we celebrate and hold on to this month. Dr. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. You just heard Hunter College professor Leah Garrett ask why Jews are left out of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Next week, we unpack that very question with my colleagues Holly Huffnagel, AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism, and Saba Sumek of AJC Los Angeles. 
And if you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for a conversation with Rabbi Amiel Hirsch about how a waning commitment to Israel has enabled and normalized a new wave of anti-Semitism. And don't forget, let us know what makes you Jewish and proud. Call our hotline at 212-891-1336. You might hear your voice on the next episode of People of the Pod. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.